Hey, welcome to Life 2.0 Podcast. I'm John St. Augustine. Delighted to have you joining me from anywhere and everywhere around planet Earth. Time to go up the down staircase in the outdoor, make sense out of the senseless, and if at all possible, find the obvious buried in the absurd. Let's go. All right, good Saturday morning to you. It is dark and cold here in Chicago. The weather has shifted. Predictably, it's frickin' November. That's the first. So I have a little bit of an agenda here today. I have like three or four things that I want to kind of recap my week uh, that I'm coming out of, that we're all coming out of, the chaos of the election. Some of them are still hanging in the balance, as they tell me on television. You know, and so let me just get to the weather thing first, because it is November. Last time I checked, and it gets cold in November. I never knew how much getting cold in November became a headline story, but last night, as the temperature dropped here in Chicago from a previous of 75 and hit a record on Thursday, yesterday it was the end of the world because the temperatures are plunging into the polar vortex or something like that. But that's all predictable stuff, and I just you know, the further I get, get away from all the media stuff, the better off I am. So when I happen to check in, I find it just absurd and crazy sometimes. It's the, all if you always do what you've always done, you'll always get what you've always got scenario. So there's nothing really new on the news. If you study history uh, and you look back and you can chart all the anomalies of the human condition up and down, back and forth, left and right, in and out constantly, it's just simply reporting on the same shit, different day, different people, in my humble opinion. So that's why the older I get, the less I spend time in that stuff. I've always kicking about the concept of getting out of the headlines and staying more in the lifelines because the headlines come and go instantaneously these days. And uh, I'll have no part of it. I'm running out of time. So are you. You just don't know it. I'm here to remind you. No one uh, is promised tomorrow. My voice is a little rougher this morning. I apologize for that. Uh, slept really well, but as I said, the weather changed, and my body changes with the weather. I don't know if you're in that position, but after, I don't know, 18, 19, 20 years of football and uh, a bunch of other things in life where, you know, you just take a, a, a battering back and forth, um, this time of year it gets a little bit more difficult for me. Uh, I spend a little bit more time with acetaminophen than I usually do, but you know what? It's all maintenance, so... While uh, it is cold and chilly this morning, I have the uh, the heater cranked up in the studio. I got a hot cup of coffee right here, and I feel pretty good overall. So we come out of this election cycle again. Every two to four years, we you know it's uh, rock'em sock'em robots, and I didn't learn anything new because it's all pretty predictable except for one thing. And I kept thinking to myself, where is it that the concept of red and blue states came from? How 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 did that happen? How did we become you know, with that stamp on a certain state. Now I get not everybody in that state is a red or blue person, but it becomes another one of those banners that we carry, that we're a red state and we're a blue state. So I had to do some digging. And the whole thing starts way back in 1976 uh, on television. Go figure. It was the original electronic visual as it was ramping up NBC, the first all-color network, unveiled an illuminated map, which was a big deal back then. And John Chancellor, what else are you going to do with a name but John Chancellor, but be the news guy, 
He was the NBC election night uh, anchor who explained how the states were going to be blue. Get this, blue if they voted for Republican Gerald Ford and red if they voted for Democratic challenger Jimmy Carter. The exact opposite of what they are today. So the arrangement was consistent with the habit of uh, texts and reference books, which tended to use blue for Republicans because in part blue was the color of the Union in the Civil War, party of Abe Lincoln. Blue is also typically associated with the more conservative parties in Europe and elsewhere. Um, on the other hand, they felt that, the you know, because it's red, white, and blue of the flag, so we got to assign something to the Democrats. So back in 1976, unlike it is today, the blue was for the conservative party and the red was for the liberal party. As other TV operations went on to full color, they added all these vivid maps, and, it, you know, that's a whole other show I'm not going to get into today. But they didn't agree on the color scheme. So viewers switching between channels might see Ronald Reagan in his landslide victory turning uh, blue on NBC, but on CBS they used red because they just, all it was was people making stuff up. You know how that goes. The confusion persisted in 2000 when the coloring of states for one party dragged on well past election night as people were more interested in the red-blue maps more than ever because we got colors in front of us, yay! The need for consistency across media outlets became paramount. They had to get this consistent. By the way, 2000 was the whole hanging Chad thing. Do you remember that? And as the conversation about the disputed election continued, referring to states that voted for George Bush as red states rather than Republican states, and those voting for Democrat Al Gore as blue states seemed increasingly natural, and it never went away. Instead, it became a staple of political discourse, not just in the media, but in academic circles and popular conversations as well. By the next presidential election, the red-blue language was so common as to be a metaphor for partisanship. That provided a convenient target for the most memorable speech of that election cycle, a 2004 keynote address at the Democratic National Convention in Boston, delivered by a young senatorial candidate from Illinois named Barack Obama. So again, we roll back to 1976. John Chancellor at NBC, somebody in the production crew says, hey, we need to start using these maps and we need to color code maps because people like that. And look, inherently, there's nothing wrong with it. I'm busting out a little bit because it all seems so silly to me. However, it works to some greater or lesser degree. Of course, a red state doesn't mean that everybody in there thinks conservatively and vice versa, but it is a way to chart things. So that is the one thing I guess I pulled out of the election cycle because I'm always thinking, well, what about this? What about this? And the rest of it's all garbage, in my opinion, only because I have a difficult time, in full disclosure, understanding people who don't have their mind made up. You know, you've been bombarded with political ads for months. They've spent in excess of $22 billion this year to go into office. Billions of dollars. Billions to try and get a seat in the House or the Senate or become a governor or what have you. And I find that... We complain about money in this country on all the ways it's used and not used. And yet we'll fork it over left and right just to get the way we, you know, things the way we want. So if you haven't made up your mind after a bombardment of commercials and other things and, and doing your homework, hopefully, I, I don't know how that the last few minutes changes things, but I did hear a lot of that on, uh, on the radio. We took a, a couple of days off and I'll talk about that in a minute to go up to uh, the great Fox Valley in Appleton, Wisconsin. And on the way up, they were doing the news because it was on the, you know, just after the election day. And there were people who were still saying, I'm so undecided. And I'm thinking, I, I don't live in that kind of world. So it's near impossible for me to look at 
you know, the list of one person and the list of the next person, these two candidates in front of me and say, yeah, I got this. And I, I still think there's a couple things that need to happen here. Never will, but what the hell, it's my show. One is the minute you vote somewhere, there's a chip in your television set that totally prevents political commercials from ever running again. So I'd vote like day two, no more political commercials. They're just done. They just can't get through. I just find them. I mean, that's where the money's at. All that money that is raised, most of it went into flyers that I put in the recycling bin and television and radio commercials. That's where that money goes. And so there's that part of it. And then the second part was, what if there was like a 1% rule on stuff that there could be a red, white, and blue partisan get together and saying, you know, like 1% of all the money raised goes to X and something that could be agreed on, whether it's education, something where that would be the case. 1%, maybe even a half percent. I'd give them that out of those billions of dollars raised that we all throw in. It's our money. So there's a 1% rule or half percent rule. That would be, I think something that could be, you know, a little bit interesting, could make a little difference somewhere. You never know. Schools are getting, trying to scrap by with stuff. Uh, I'm very active with my alma mater high school, Shures in Chicago, and we have fundraisers once a year to kind of plug the holes where the CPS system, you know, comes up short because of the way things have changed over the years. So you can imagine if, if every major city in the country was able to split a, a 1% of a 20 billion for education, that's not a bad deal. It's not a bad deal at all. I mentioned about going up to the Fox Valley in, uh, in Wisconsin, my mom's family's from there. And when I was a kid, we'd go up there all, you know, once a summer for about a week or two. My dad usually had two weeks off. One week was sometimes at home. Next week we were in Appleton, Wisconsin. It was a big, big deal for us as city kids to go up to the country. We saw Appleton, Wisconsin as country. Uh, it is, um, it's, it's, uh, pretty cosmopolitan and metropolitan these days, of course. The, the amount of growth that's occurred over the last 40, 50 years is not unlike every major area or area, you know, like between Milwaukee and Green Bay, Appleton's like the stop, right? So it's like people come from Green Bay to, to, to work there and to shop there and people run up from Milwaukee to go there. So these things are all starting to connect each other. I mean, Milwaukee's like a suburb of Chicago at this point. But to get up there and, and uh, see friends and family that I have not seen literally for decades, made me so happy. Um, my family is not very big. So every time we lose someone, it kind of is like, okay, the, you know, the shovel's getting a little closer here. And I put together a dinner for uh, 14 cousins and their kids. And to sit at this enormous table, and I'm going to give a straight up shout out and plug to George's Steakhouse on Memorial Drive in Appleton, Wisconsin. Uh, Teresa and I have been going there for many years. Always have a great time. It's an old world supper club. Like it's walking into 1963 uh, in the Midwest. It's fantastic. Got the dark wood, got the piano guy over in the corner. You got your Manhattans and your highballs and, you know, your Blatt's beer and great steaks and great times and, and it's just fantastic. So uh, we had 14 of us and there's this long table. At the far end are my aunt and uncle, the only remaining aunties and uncles from that part of the, of the family. Uh, aunt Pat is 85 or six. Uncle Ray is about the same. They've outlived their three kids, which is just mind bending to me and to them. So I felt that we could kind of get everybody around the table. Uh, then it's not just at funerals where we see each other, which gets to be depressing as hell. So it was fantastic. Uh, I caught up with my cousins, Gary and Doug and Liz and, uh, 
we we were unfortunately um, missing uh, Tommy, Julie, Pammy, and Ricky, and all the uh, the aunts and uncles that were there. My parents, of course, not there. So it was just something that really made my week. I'd been looking forward to this for quite a while, and uh, to sit with them and reminisce and think about the things that uh, we used to think about before everything was red and blue <laughs> was was just wonderful. And I, I think that we need you know more than I say we meaning in mass you know we're in a week where everything gets so divided, and to come to a table and I can guarantee you all of us at the table probably are not of the same political persuasion, but I didn't care. I think you can go past all that stuff and just have a good time with people you care about, and and that's it for me. I mean I, that's where it begins and ends. All that division stuff, you know, all this ramping up about red and blue and, and the battle, battleground states, really? Is that the term we need to use? When there's so much more to life than politics. And I say this all the time. And, uh, I've never seen Democrat or Republican or even independent in a cemetery on a headstone. Never one time in my life. And I've been to, I don't know, 100 funerals in my time. So I've never seen that. Nobody gets up and gives a eulogy on how this person who died voted, what they thought their political beliefs were. And I say to myself, if it doesn't matter at the end, why do we make such a big deal about it in the middle? Because everything has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And at the end, you're working backwards. And there wasn't anybody that I can recall that, that, that was ever given at their wake. You know, you stand up. Does anybody have any words to say? Yeah, so-and-so was a staunch Republican. So-and-so was a, you know, a liberal Democrat. No one's ever said that. And yet these divisions exist, which shouldn't, in my opinion, exist. But... I also live in a, a little bit of a alternate universe at times. I just think there are ways we can come together and find middle ground uh, without politics always having to be the deciding factor. You know, it's no different to me than the Bears and the Packers. So my dad was a rabid Bears fan, no pun intended, and my uncle Ron was a rabid Packers fan. But they got along. You know, they jabbed at you. You know, and, and even though it's a little bit of a you know slightly off example. It's the same deal. You know, there's, there's a healthy rivalry there. And these days the Packers are playing like the Bears. So, <laughs> you know, Uncle Ron wouldn't be real happy with that. But those type of things, when you can find kind of common ground, I think that they are the one things that, that, that kind of push the other stuff away. So here we are done with, for the most part, there's a couple elections left that are yet to be decided. Would not want to be working as a, you know, voting judge. You can forget that. Don't have the uh, energy and effort for that. But I will say that we've come into this low point and shortly we're going to already start ramping up to the 2024 presidential election. So we've had a little bit of a breather and in that kind of middle ground area, take a deep breath and realize that, you know, it's a good chance that when you pass away, you'll be buried next to someone you never would have liked in life. <laughs> I think about that a lot. You know, you go to cemeteries, I live right near one, and, I, and I've always felt very peaceful walking through cemeteries, pretty quiet there, I can think, you know, and you see all these people that did not know each other in life, they would never live to each other, probably next to each other when they were alive, but there they are buried, you know, two feet away, and I, I know that, you know, it's a little different than when you're alive, but the, it's still a metaphor to me, it's still a reminder to me that the world's a big place and it's filled with a lot of people. And then sometimes I think we're doing pretty good. I mean, there's always the anomalies. There's always the, the, you know, the people from the lower end of the gene pool that mix it up and mash it up and shit it up for everybody else. But it could be a lot worse. And we've seen worse. 
And so to me, it's like holding the line for the better. And that's all I can do. You know, when I'm doing this podcast, especially this morning, I feel in some way, shape or form, it's just sitting down with a cup of coffee on a cold November morning and just having a conversation with people, even though it may seem a little one-sided, I feel like this is my way to kind of pay for the space I take up on the planet. That if there's something that could be talked about or brought to your attention, even about the red and blue thing, did you know that? I didn't know that. I've been voting since 1978. I didn't know that. Of course, it started two years earlier in 76, but I never thought, well, how does it red and blue? Well, now you know why it's red and blue. At least nothing else comes out of this podcast. You don't know that. And the last thing I want to talk about uh, is how my day ended yesterday. Um, when we were in Appleton, uh, we went to one of those used bookstores. And uh, my highly significant other is a, I mean, she's got her own library. Let's put it that way. So you are not going to pass any bookstores without going in. So we had a, just a wonderful breakfast and we're heading back to get the best chocolate milk on planet Earth at Lommer's Dairy, man, over on 441 in College Avenue. And on the way there, we, we stopped at this bookstore. And poking around, poking around, poking around. You know what I, you know, I like to read. I don't like to read as she likes to read. That's the difference because I spend so much time working on book projects. Sometimes the last thing I want to do is read a book. So, but I've, you know, you never know what you're going to find. I'm meandering through, meandering through, and I kind of wandered off to the sports section. And there I see Farewell to Football by my friend, Jerry Kramer, who played for the Super Bowl Packers under Lombardi and played 10 years in the NFL. And his first book, Instant Replay, was a huge big deal back when it came out in 1967 into 68 because no football player had ever written a book like that. And, and the late, great Dick Schapp uh, put the whole thing together. So I see this Farewell to Football, and I think I read it. It's two bucks, so I buy the book. And I get back home, and it's sitting here on my desk, and I'm, I'm working yesterday on some audiobook projects, and I'm, I'm really you know, excited only because it's completed that uh, Every Moment Matters, my second book, will be out in audio uh, by Christmas, hopefully. Not that I, you got to buy it as a Christmas gift, but it was something I wanted to get done. I've, I've explained this a little bit before. The publishing world is a, is a strange deal, man. And uh, I learned about the publishing industry from the inside out because I had two books published, uh, Living an Uncommon Life and Every Moment Matters. I had a two-book deal, and I started to understand how this machine works and why it doesn't to some degree. So now with the advent of print-on-demand, I could literally you know, recreate those books and then put them out in the world because the books that are being sold now, I just happened to look this morning at Every Moment Matters on Amazon. You know, it's like under 50,000 uh, rating. Now, that's not good or bad, but it's not in the millions. And that means their books are being moved around and being bought. I don't see a dime of those because those are all books that have already been sold and they're being resold and they're not in print. So that I get nothing out of that except the satisfaction that somebody's reading them. And I'm okay with that. Um, but the new thing is audio. Actually, it's not a new thing. Books on tape have been around a very long time. What's new about it is the whole digital download thing and the quality of the digital audio that you're able to create. So I've been working on the audio version of Every Moment Matters on and off since spring. And I finished this past week and I reviewed it all yesterday and I got it all set up for specs and we're going to send it over to my my friend Catherine, who uh, takes care of all that stuff for me with the uploads and all the higher end technical stuff my brain can't comprehend sometimes. But I finished it. So, but as I'm sitting here, I keep looking at Kramer's book to my left and I start reading a little bit and read a little bit more. Now, this book came out in 1970, I believe, 69, 70. 
And that's a long time ago. I was 11 years old. I was 11. And I had read, I've told this story before, and uh, the story is in Uncommon Life, right? There's a chapter on Kramer. And I think it was in the 90s, maybe early 2000s, Jack Canfield of the Chicken Soup for the Soul fame had a compilation book uh, created called You've Got to Read This Book, where he went to like 30 prominent authors and others and asked him what book was most profound for them. And he asked me to participate. I was so honored to do that. And I had to put in about the experience of reading Instant Replay. And it, it became less and less about football, more and more about learning discipline and teamwork and, and these underpinnings of success and all that stuff. So that all happened when I was 10 on a ride back from Appleton to Chicago. My dad had thrown Kramer's book in the garbage because he hated the Packers. And I fished it out and I read it on the, the two-hour, three-hour drive, whatever it was back you know, in 1969. So reading this book yesterday, going through it, and I'm just like having a, a time warp. There's just some things running through my mind. Like here I am putting together the audio version of my second book. And eventually, probably in the spring, I'll get around to the audio version of Living in Uncommon Life. And those will be the only new applications out in the world. I, I don't see foresee doing print again. It's just too much effort and work. Quite frankly, I can just sit here and do the audio end of it and get the same deal. And then people can download it and listen. Anyway, um, I'm going back and forth. Look, this is my second book. I've written three books. There's probably one or two more in me. I'm not sure what the deal is going to be there. And if you'd have told me when I picked Kramer's book up when I was a kid at the backseat of my dad's car that I'd ever write anything besides a school paper or homework, I, I wouldn't even know what to think about that. So as a, as a three-time author, the books have all done well, and I'm, that, that, that's all well and good. It was just, I'm having this surreal moment. It's like, what are, the, what are the odds of all that? And how much influence really did that book have on me that I didn't know about? And Dick Shap, the late, great Dick Shap, um, there's some great documentaries on him, and he's all over the internet as far as YouTube and things like that. I never I met the man once uh, doing radio. We, we set it up where... Dick had a new book out talking about all the people that he'd worked with and like that. And I had him on the radio and we snuck Kramer in as a surprise caller. It was a lot of fun. Uh, but we, we talked a little bit and you know, it was, it was just, I, I understand now why people admired the guy, but he was a two finger hunt and peck typer on an old typewriter. And he wrote like 35 books and I'm sitting here. I took typing for three years in high school, not knowing I'd ever use it. And I'm not, you know, I'm writing books for other people. So in some ways, I feel a little bit more prolific than I thought I was. But the whole diversion of Kramer's book started me thinking like, you know, okay, let me just, let me just stop here for a second. I'm in Appleton this past week. I'm reading Kramer's book that was picked up for $2. I'm going to call him. It's been a couple, three weeks since we talked. And I try to check in on him once a month or so. Uh, Jerry's got to be 85, 86 at this point. Still pretty clear. You know, I mean, I have days that he's clearer than me on some days. So I called him and he always answers the phone the same way. John, John, the gray goose is gone. And I said, the fox is in the, on the town or something like that. And uh, some old saying, he does it every single time for 30 years. And I said, it's still happening. He goes, every time you call, it seems to happen. So we're going back and forth and catching up on, on certain things. And I tell him about the book and all that. And I was re you know, sharing with him the time... Uh, in Barnes and Noble, where I found my first book, Living an Uncommon Life, 
in a bargain bin for $1.99 next to John Grisham and Anne Lamott, two writers that I greatly admire. And I thought, wow, we're all the same. And so I was telling him the story about the $1.99 thing, and we go back and forth and have a good laugh about it. And, you know, he says, you know, just because a book costs $1.99 doesn't, doesn't mean it's not worth a million dollars. And he was talking about Think and Grow Rich by Napoleon Hill, which you can get for four bucks. And if you follow the suggestions and the recommendations in that book, you could turn your brain set around, your mindset around and go in a whole new direction. And that's where the conversation with Jerry went. He was sharing with me about when he was a kid, he got, he shot himself accidentally with double aught box, buckshot in his, I believe it's his right arm and shredded his forearm big time. And they were talking about amputation at one point. And of course that didn't happen, but he, uh, he said, well, I'm going to pick up the shot put in, in no matter what. And he did in high school. And he went to this track meet and he starts imitating the announcer. Now doing the shot put. And I'm cracking up listening to Jerry, knowing he's sitting on his couch in Boise, you know, imitating this uh, announcer from 70 years ago, somewhere in there. And, uh, Jerry Kramer. And he's doing the whole Kramer, Kramer, Kramer thing. So it's, Great storyteller. And the first time he throws the shot put, it's uh, like 30 feet. Not very good. But something happened where the judges couldn't exactly figure out where it landed or something in along those lines. So he got, and he felt bad. He was like, I can do better. And he started getting angry. He started getting worked up, started getting mad. And he gets a second chance and he th- throws the next one 51-10, I believe is what he said. Almost double what he threw the first time. And he said, I had an epiphany, John. He said, what's the difference between throwing at 30 feet and 5110 besides the obvious amount of feet? He said, I got angry and I got pissed off and I got worked up and I got mad at myself. And I, he says, by the time I threw it the second time, I had worked myself in, into such an energy tornado that it all got pushed through that shot and threw it 5110. And he said, that was a moment to me that was profound. He said, I was afraid before I threw the shot because of my arm. And when I had the second chance, I was able to connect with a different part of energy, which is the anger of coming up short, no pun intended, and throwing it almost double. He said, I realized right then that anger can be funneled in ways that are very, very good and very effective. And and the results can be, you know, markedly, markedly better. And so we go off on a whole nother conversation about all that. And he says, it's, you know, fear makes you weak. Anger makes you strong, but it's all about how you channel the anger. Just being pissed off and angry and running around doesn't do anything good. But getting that fire going inside and getting it burning and ramped up and then finding somewhere to put it that works matters. So then he goes off to tell me about Alex Karras and Merlin Olson and how he had to battle those guys, um, you know, on a regular basis, twice a year, sometimes, especially Alex Karras and having to work up that anger in order just to survive all that stuff. And I asked him, I said, so when you retired, what did you do with then? It was very difficult for some uh, athletes to, to make that transition tomorrow on the John and Jen show on WCRW 1190 in Washington, DC and online at www.newworldradionetwork.com. I have a conversation with Nate Boyer two-time tours of Iraq and Afghanistan as a Green Beret. He was a long snapper for the Seattle Seahawks and a long snapper for the University of Texas Longhorns. 
and uh, with no football background. And he was also talking about, you know, those type of things, the transitional things. He, he has a uh, organization called MVP, Merging Vets and Players, where he takes veterans from the military who have a hard time transitioning and players from the NFL who have a hard time and puts them together so they can work their way through it. He has a new movie out called MVP, which was produced uh, by Sylvester Stallone's production company. So anyway, I asked Jerry about that. Well, what about that? And he says, well, it goes back to the same thing. It's how you channel your energy. It's where you decide to put it. He goes, anger for anger's sake does nothing. It makes it worse. But if you can get yourself in a position where you're angry about something, an issue, or something you want to get done, and you can get more creative about how to solve that problem, he said that anger serves a purpose. Fear does nothing except make you weak. Fear holds you back. And so I'm sitting here, again, having a ding, ding moment, thinking I'm, you know, here working on my own books. I've read Kramer's books, and at one time it was the best-selling sports book in history. I'm thinking about Dick Shap clicking away with two fingers, which is still amazing to me. And I'm on the phone with Kramer, who I've known for 35 years, and all of a sudden, it's kind of hard to explain, almost like this, this light came, everything got clear. And what, what Kramer was talking about was the whole, it like pulled everything together. I think that's what I read about in Instant Replay when I was 10, but I didn't understand it until he put it into words, you know, 50 plus years later. And maybe that's where the whole concept of what we see in the world goes on. As a lot of times we just see anger on the headlines. We see anger in politics. We see anger with each other. That's just the anger. But if you have anger about something and you can turn it into something a little bit more I don't want to say profitable, but possible for you. You can do amazing things, but you got to keep the fire stoked inside. There's more than enough fodder out there to do that. That's for sure. So in a short form, that's kind of how my week was. We survived another round of political, you know what, and had a great time in Appleton, Wisconsin with family. And then I got a chance to spend time with my friend who always gives me uh, something to think about by the time the, uh, the conversation's over. And this podcast for today is over. My thanks to those who subscribe to this, those, especially you who have been with me since day one. We're going on five years in May, I believe. And um, thank you so much. I mean, I know 20 bucks a month sometimes sounds like a lot. To some people it's not, some, some people it is. And it's five bucks a week, comes out to 66 cents a day. So it helps me stay on board and online with this. I am, uh, it's like having a training partner. I know that you're out there you're, as a subscriber. I know that on Saturdays and every other day when you can download, you listen because I hear from you and I appreciate that. So I appreciate the support and the opportunity to do this with you. Until next time, be well, safe travels. Adios.